You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 675. I see everything in black, in pain. Claude Monet. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker or the film entrepreneur. In Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, I break down how to actually make money with your film projects and show you how to turn your indie film into a profitable business. With case studies examining successes and failures, this book shows you the step-by-step method to turn your passion into a profitable career. If you're making a feature film, series, or any other kind of video content, the Film Entrepreneur method will set you up for success. The book is available in paperback, ebook, and of course, audiobook. If you want to order it, just head over to www.filmbizbook.com. That's filmbizbook.com. Now, today on the show, we have writer, showrunner, Daniel Knopf. And if the name doesn't sound familiar, maybe the shows that he worked on has. He created HBO's Carnival, which is a cult favorite. If you guys have not seen it, there's two amazing seasons of it out there in the world. And I was a big fan of it when it came out in the early 2000s. And at the time, it was the most expensive television show in the world at the time. It was crazy how much they were spending on basically an unknown. He had never uh, done anything of any major, major magnitude before then. So it was pretty amazing what he was able to do. And we talk all about his adventures in Carnival, being a showrunner of that show, as well as his writing method, his adventures inside the writer's room and what it's like to be inside of a writer's room of a big show. He's also worked on shows like The Blacklist, Dracula, Spartacus, My Own Worst Enemy, and many, many more. And he's, uh, he's been around the block a few times uh, and it is a very, very interesting story of how he got into the business and how he got his first shot with Carnival and that whole process of a struggling writer, someone who just loved to write, uh, but was not getting a whole lot of traction. And then one day, Hollywood came a-knocking, and uh, he uh, I think he was ready. So uh, we'll talk more about that in the episode, which was extremely enlightening and inspirational, to say the least. Now, if you guys want to watch the video podcast of this, it is on Indie Film Hustle TV. And you could uh, go to the Indie Film Hustle TV video podcast to see Uh, us actually, me and Daniel, talk it out and see this interview live. It's really, really uh, a cool experience to watch it. So if you want to do that, just head over to IndieFilmHustle.tv. And now, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Knopf. I'd like to welcome to the show Daniel Knopf. Thank you so much for being on the show, my friend. Oh, I'm happy to be here. 
So first, first off, you have well, you have a very um, impressive career and resume. So we're going to get into a bunch of the stuff you've done. But first and foremost, how did you get started in the film industry? Crazy story that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whenever, whenever my, you know, I, I do seminars sometimes, you know, and inevitably it'd be like, how do I break into film? Which is funny anyway, because it's like what, you know. There, because there's larceny is kind of hard baked into the entertainment business. And so the language reflects it. So it's like, you don't hear people saying, well, how do I break into accountancy or how do I break into plumbing or construction? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. but no, we got to do a B and E to get into this business. So <laughs> the, that question will come up and, uh, and, and it's like, I'm singularly unhelpful in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was an insurance broker until I was in my mid forties. I did that for like 22, 23 years. I ran a business and, um, and while I was doing it, I was, I, I'd always wanted to be a screenwriter and, and I'd studied, um, I'd studied creative writing in, in college and grown up in Los Angeles. And so I kind of had, and I loved movies. I mean, it just, uh, it was my favorite thing. And, and, but I had three kids and I had to raise them and I had to make money and I, there was a certain, you know, lifestyle. I wanted to have a house and, you know, be able to pay my bills and that kind of thing. So, mm -hmm. um, I kind of set it aside, um, around the time I was 22 and got married and it was like, Oh yeah, this isn't what grownups do. Um, <laughs> and then around the time I was, by the time I was 27, I was actually going insane. I mean, I was like, <laughs> like, like literally like I was not a happy camper mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, uh, and so I was going through this crushing depression and, uh, I started writing again and it brought me out of it. and I realized, yeah, I'm kind of, this isn't something that I want to do. This is something I kind of have to do. Um, I'm just, my brain's wired this way and I need to be doing something creative in order to, in order to, it's like a shark has to swim, you know, mm -hmm. I have to do this thing. Um, and so, I mean, so when people come to me and say, God, I've always wanted to write. And I think, well, I've always wanted to be a bird. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't have any choice. It's like, I, so I started doing that and I focused on really developing my craft and um, writing screenplays and reading books about screenplays, you know, Sid, Sid Field's book, screenplay mm -hmm. and, other books where some of them were useful, some of them were completely useless. Taking some seminars, going to UCLA, you know, UCLA Extension here in LA has some great classes, um, and um, and just basically focusing on learning the craft and um, and I uh, getting some mentors. I had a, I, I had two very good mentors. My first mentor was Jan Fisher, who wrote The Lost Boys. We met um, when I was in a uh, workshop at UCLA and uh, ended up writing some scripts together. Um, and, um, and she kind of took me under her wing and really, really taught me a lot. And then, and then uh, I reached, I hit like, I hit my forties and I, and I, I said to myself and I'd put it up, I said, you know what? I'm, I, I told myself if I'm, this isn't happening by the time I'm like 40, um, I'm just going to do something else. I'm mm -hmm. start writing, I'll write novels because it's sort of a young man's game. And, you know, breaking in is, <laughs> as any 40-something-year-old, 40, 40 you know, slightly 
overweight B and E guy will tell you it's probably a lot easier when you're in your twenties. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I thought, hey, I come from a long line of like really sore losers. Like we're the guys who flip the monopoly board and throw tennis rackets <laughs> at people. And, right. You know, my bro- my brother always says uh, his fa- one of his favorite things is, "Show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser." <laughs> so, so I just said, yeah, I'm just going to take one more real run at this. I created a website called unmovies.com, posted the first acts of all my scripts that I'd written up to that point. Um, and, you know, by then I'd had some success. I had, I did sell a script in the, in 1993 that ended up being a movie for HBO called uh, blind justice is a, a Western, but then, Nothing after that. You know, it was like, yeah, it was like, there, there was nothing. Tumbleweeds. It was, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, you know, Chuck Yeager, you know, bouncing his X-15 off of the stratosphere, you know. It's like, wow, it's coming in too hot. Um, <laughs> and um, and so I, I was really, you know, in the crust of a slump. So I, 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 I just created this website and put this stuff on. And I got a call from a guy, uh, Robert Keobod, who worked for a guy named uh, Scott Winant and Scott was an Emmy winning director and he had told Robert, you know, I'm tired of reading doctors, lawyers and cops, show me something different. And Robert found the first act of Carnival and he contacted me and says, Hey, I'd like to read the rest of your pilot. And I'm thinking, what pilot? And I remember, Oh yeah, that thing, you know, I, I, I'd taken this crazy 200 page screenplay that didn't work and thought maybe this isn't a feature, and I, I, I collapsed the first act into a pilot. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so I showed it to them, and I met with them, and they were very, um, they, they were they were very helpful, and they told me I needed to do a Bible, and I didn't know what a Bible was. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, I did this Bible for Carnival, and then we took it to HBO, and all of a sudden it was like they bought it, and 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 I was executive producing and and writing an HBO series. So I, I started my career at the very top of the heap. <laughs> I came in, um, and you know it was weird because it was like nobody had worked with me. I'd never done another television show. I had no reputation in the business. I just came out of like left field and I'm running an HBO series and they're, you know, they only would have like, you know, four or five shows on at a time. It was pretty, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, you know, high up kind of position. And if for somebody who was really a nobody to be in and, um, I mean, I actually got to a point, I remember reading on, 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 on IMDB that there was like a rumor going around that I didn't exist and that I was a, I was a, a pseudonym for David Lynch, which was like really <laughs> flattering, but not really good for the brand, if you can imagine. And, and so I, I did this show for two years and I really kind of hung on by my fingernails. It was a, it was, it was, it was a kind of a terrifying experience because it's a shark tank in there. And, and, um, I, uh, just to answer your question, it's like to, for me to give advice to someone on how to get in, I can't really say, and I didn't come in, you know, oh, I was a baby writer for a while and I got a story editor job on another show. And then I, you know, built that up and I went, I didn't do the same trajectory 
as most TV writers do. I mean, I know what that trajectory is. You graduate from film school, you pull every, every favor you can get and you try to get, um, into the, into a writer's room. Um, whether you're in there as a office PA and you're bringing coffee or whether you're a writer's assistant and you're just taking notes. And that's really the way into TV writer. It's you know, TV writing. It's really a very much, um, it's, 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 it's very much like the old, you know, like, you know, getting into plumbing or you know, shoemaking back <laughs> in the joining the guild. Um, it's, it, it's, it, you know, but mine, I just, I broke right through it. It's sort of the top. Now, yeah, I've been working my way down ever since. <laughs> so you said it was, a, it was a shark tank. Can you explain a little bit about what was about that experience that was the shark tank? Cause I mean, you have a very unique story. You're right. Most people don't start off running an HBO series. Well, I wasn't running it. I mean, I mean, but you know what I mean? Like executive producing the, it. The stuff. first year Ron was, was running. And, but well, really the main reason what it boils down to is, is there's a lot of money on the line and they were putting a bet on an untested talent. And that's kind of terrifying for a major corporation. Yeah, it was like ter- it was like four million an episode or something like that, right? Yeah, it's three point seven five in the first season, as far as I know, and that was at that time the most expensive show on TV. I mean, we had a huge cast, and we had extras and, and elements, and a lot of outside days, and and some special effects. And so, um, it was it was a it was a, a hugely expensive undertaking, and they would have loved to have had a season hand at the top. And that's what they kind of wanted to do. Um, they, they, it was like, if we could find a guy who can take this, this other guy's crazy idea and make it work, I'm sure they would have scraped me off at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but they found to their kind of their horror. And, and I'm not saying this, you know, to pat myself on the back or anything. This is what I've been told by other people who were involved at the time. They said what they found was nobody else knew how to write that show. And so they were stuck with me. And so you, so you wrote yourself a niche. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, really what else? I mean, basically what I did was I created, it's like, it's like sitting out creating a board game where everything you do well is something that wins that board game. And it's custom designed for every single thing you do well. And, and they realized, so I'm probably guessing to their abject horror that, you know, that they needed me and, and they couldn't get rid of me. And, it would have been easier to get rid of me because I was so green. And from my standpoint, I didn't know the rules and when getting into Hollywood and dealing with Hollywood people and the entertainment business is a lot like suddenly getting into time machine, finding yourself in the court of King Louis the 14th and you're, there's a whole battery of sort of kabuki like rituals and certain things that have to be said and how they're said and, pecking orders. And I remember my first, I sent a memo out one time and in the insurance business, you send a memo out and you just, it's here. It is here. Everybody, here's what's going on. But you know, um, I got called by one of the executive producers. He said, what do you think you're doing? It's like, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm sending out this memo about, you know, some nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh, he climbed up my ass about, oh, you have to put this person's name first and this person's name second and this person's name third. Uh, and so it was really 
a lot about just learning these weird customs and rituals and expectations. I also didn't know what was a reasonable ask. Like, you know, was it a reasonable ask, you know, if I said, no, let's not do this. Um, you, you, it's pretty easy if you don't have a really strong knowledge of physical production, and I didn't back then, to step on the anthill, and I did that pretty regularly. I learned very, I'm a quick study, and I learn, and I make, I generally don't make the same mistake twice. Um, I just make every possible mistake once. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Fair enough. And, and so it was, it was, it was kind of a, a a, a jarring, terrifying kind of experience in which I was kind of hanging on by my fingernails, at, you know, at all times and feeling like a stranger in a strange land. Um, but I, I did the full two years and, and in those two years, I, I pretty much learned the lay of the land. And, uh, you know, so after that, I, I knew, you know, exactly how, how the sausage is made and, and, uh, had a, I really had a, a love for physical production and asked a lot of people who were very knowledgeable questions and learning about that. And, um, and so, you know, since then that, that was my carnival was kind of my film school, you know, it was like hell of a film school. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there was a, there was no, there was an immense amount of, 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 there was, there was, there was money and stature and everything riding on that. Um, I mean, our, our, the sad thing really is, the expectations HBO had for the series were wholly unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things that killed us. If we went on the air on HBO now, you know, they'd be go- considered like an unmitigated success. Um, but they were saying, oh, we expect to score higher numbers with this show than The Sopranos. And when I, the day I heard that, I was going, oh, God, we are so dead because The Sopranos is mainstream drama. And whenever you get into genre stuff, even more so back then than now mm-hmm. um, where genre has kind of, you know, oozed into mainstream back then there were people where as soon as Ben heals the little girl at the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. they're going to turn it off and they're not going to turn it back on because they're going, that's not real, you know, and <laughs> that it's, there's some people, no matter how well, it doesn't matter whether listening to super good jazz or really crappy jazz they just don't, they can't differentiate because they just don't like jazz or rap or country Western. And for, you know, shows to involve magic or uh, supernatural or whatever, if people aren't into that, no matter how good you, you do, you're going to lose that audience. Do you think that Carnival would have had a better chance in today's environment, like on a streaming service? Like they have a longer run? I suspect we would have done our full run. Uh, if it, if it came out, if it came out, I would say if, even if it came out like two or three years after we did come out, uh, we were really on the bleeding edge of everything. And, um, people just weren't really ready for that show. And, and it, it would have been easier too, because a lot of, t- a lot of what we were doing in the first season and the first season drags quite a lot. Um, but a lot of it was about just teaching people the vocabulary of the show mm-hmm. and, so that they would understand and people is there'd never been anything on like that. It was just, it was, it was just a really weird thing. You know, I mean, it had kind of the cryptic aspects of twin peaks, but it was a period drama and mm-hmm. there was some historical aspects that were based on true 
you know, situations and true events and other things that were that were made up. And and so we, we really felt like we kind of had to handhold the audience along for the, you know, the first first at least six episodes. So they understand what the rules were. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now, can you, you said some, you said a, a term show Bible, um, for a lot of people who are listening, they might not know what a show Bible is. Can you explain how, what your process was being a newbie, <laughs> putting it uh, uh, together? Just so they don't feel, you know, as though they're, you know, as though, as though they're, they're dumb or anything. When, my, when, when Scott said, yeah, first you need to, you know, we need to get a Bible. And I'm thinking, if you're going to kneel down and pray, they buy it. <laughs> no, I, I was like, uh, King James or the new American way, where, what? Name your poison. Um, a show Bible is basically a document that goes into the, um, the, the milieu of, you know, the world. Uh, first, you start basically with a log line, okay? Um, uh, um, you know, powers of, it's like a, on a war between good and evil is fought in the, in the you know, blasted landscape of the 30s dust bowl, you know, whatever. So you come up with your your sort of three liner or two liner log line, and then you start to elaborate on that, and you, you get into um, the world, um, the the rules of the world. Um, you know, the you might like I like to put use images just to set tone and give them an idea of what things are going to look like, um, and you you. Um, you talk about the history of all the backstory. You get into the description of the, you know, it's a full-blown articulation of the bottom three quarters of the iceberg. And talk about the characters, the characters' histories, you know, detailed descriptions of who everybody is and where they come from. And then, um, and then you go into. Um, you know, first season, this is your first season arc. That will be quite detailed by episode one. You do this, episode two, this. And then, you know, later episodes, you're kind of, you know, increasingly uh, shorthanding it and giving people an idea of where the, the, the thrust of the show is and what its destination is, where when the show kind of ends, um, if, the, if it ends. I mean, a lot of shows end when nobody's watching them anymore. I mean, the most episodic dramas end when people are just tired of watching it, you know, mm-hmm. um, but a serial, this is a serial. And, and um, it, that's, that's kind of what I put together for them. And what I did was a very complex thing to where people were looking at it and going, wow, is this based on like real people? Cause I had like, I got bored with it. I said, when, once I heard that description, okay, here's what you have to do. I got suit. I started writing it, and I was going, "God, this is like watching paint dry." And if I'm bored, whoever's reading this, whoever's got the misfortune of reading this thing, it's going to be, you know, even more. It was headache inducing, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I started going, "Let's have a little fun with it." And what I did is I created the whole thing sort of from the point of view of um, this intrepid university professor who had heard about this carnival and had done a bunch of research and gathered files about 
the actual carnival. And it it were fake police reports and fake newspaper articles and fake religious tracts and all kinds of stuff that he kind of gathered and put together. There was even an interview with Samson when he's like 75 years old in an old folks home, you know, Mm -hmm. and he's this, this sort of, you know, angry curmudgeon, you know, and, and, uh, you know, just, just like, you know, can you go out and give me some booze, you know? Um, and so I just had a blast writing it. And, and so they saw it they'd never seen anything like that. Um, and I've done that since on almost every show that I've developed because I always figure, Hey, you know, why well, screw a success, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> have some fun while you're doing it. I mean, it's like I'm beginning. I keep hearing different things. Some people say you need to come in with every dot, every I dotted, and every T crossed, and, and man, you know, and and and, and you know, uh, trailers, you know, uh, um, you know, um, promos, you know, the shot, you know, uh, whatever, you know, this whole thing. And then I hear other people saying the best bet's just to go in with a strong pitch. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the rules are anymore, you know? Um, well, yeah, the Netflix yeah. and Hulu and those guys come and throw everything out the window as far as rules are concerned. Very much so. And, and you really, you know, it, it's like, um, it, it's, they've, they set up shops so far, you know, kind of upstream, um, that they, they wield an immense, they, in, the world, and this isn't just in Hollywood. There's the golden rule, which is he who has the gold rules. And and in Hollywood, that's very, very, very much operative. And you know, people like Netflix are sitting on billions and billions of dollars, and they say, okay, you get some, and you get some, and you get some. And um, I don't know what they're, you know, which projects, what what makes them pick out what project or you know whatever. Uh, it's kind of, I mean, really, I mean, sometimes I feel it's like that. There was this old show that was on, I think in the fifties before my time, but it was called the millionaire. And it was about a guy who would just go out to random people yes. and give them a million, yeah. you know, a million dollars, <laughs> <laughs> which back in the fifties would be, you know, oh, you could buy an island for a million dollars. Now you can't even buy it. Now you before. can't even buy a house in Burbank. <laughs> Yeah, four bedroom house in Reseda, but the, you know the the, um, the with a swimming pool probably. Probably uh, yeah. the sometimes I feel like that's what Netflix is now. You know, is kind of like all of a sudden, boom! You know, you're gifted with it, and so well, it's a very it's a very chaotic market right now. It is pretty insane. And, and, you know, I've talked to, you know, I talked to a lot of people like yourselves who are in the business, who were in the business before Netflix, and I've seen them just disrupt this entire industry. And now players like Disney are showing up with their streaming service and Apple just talked, just said, Hey, we're going to put ours in and, uh, Comcast, or I think it's AT&T, excuse me. They have one coming out. Like there's so many of these services coming out and it's really just changing the way everything is done. Yeah, well, what's what's interesting too is the impact it's had on just the way people comport themselves. Like, I think I don't know who it was. I think it was Betty Davis or one of those old actresses mm-hmm. um, was quoted as saying, "Hollywood's the place, the one place on earth where you can get encouraged to death." You know, <laughs> <laughs> very and, true. Uh, it's extremely true. Or as I like to say, you know, when people say, "Hey, you know, it's good for exposure," and I go, well, "People die from exposure." <laughs> <laughs> That I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that line. I'm gonna steal that. That's, line. that's a line on a death certificate. You know, 
cause of death. He was exposed. Um, <laughs> exposure. So, so, you know, but it used to be that everybody was really super, super, super. I was talking to my wife about this this morning. And I was just making this observation. It used to be that people were very, very sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of polite and genteel with each other. Mainly because you really didn't know whether this guy who was you just had every reason to believe is a completely talentless hack, mm-hmm. okay, um, or a, just a straight up bozo. Um, for all you know, from your experience in six years, could be running a studio. You, you just didn't know, or could be the guy that everybody wants to do business with. So people were generally very careful with um, talent relations. You didn't want to. You wanted to, you know, it would always be, God, we really love this, but it's just not right for us right now. We were developing something similar to it or, you know, it's be always that kind of, there'd always be, we love you. We think you're great. But my agent one time called me up. It was like the sixth thing that it's like not sold. And, and he says, yeah, well, they really love you. And I go, no, they don't. They don't. <laughs> love me because if they love me they would buy shit from me i could wipe my ass on a piece of toilet paper and submit that and they'd base a show on it don't tell me they love me but but there was still that it was just sort of out of kind of out of out of not respect i wouldn't say it's out of respect i wouldn't say it was them being kind it's not kindness it was out of fear it was fear that the person who's sitting in this chair right now with us Maybe somebody we absolutely need to be doing business with later. So we don't want to burn any bridges. What I found lately in talking to other writers and stuff is Netflix. And maybe it's because I've, I read a little bit about their, their internal culture of transparency and say what's on your mind to be totally frank with people. And that's the way we do things and is there's a tendency for them to say, huh, fuck off. We're not interested. Go away. I mean, it'll be just like, fuck off, go away. And you'll go, what didn't you like? What? Fuck you. We, you know, we, we didn't like it. You know, uh, something didn't work for us. So go fuck off. You know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And, and they don't give you feedback. They don't say what they're looking for. They don't want a follow-up meeting. And, and it's curt and it's harsh. You Gary, know? I heard that too. And, and so it, it's like, it's like, it's like, what does that bode well for them? Um, if they come sniffing around later and, you know, and they're not somebody I want to do business with. They're probably going to have to throw m- more money at me to get me. And they'll ha- and they'll have it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because they've got the money. But I just think, you know, guys, there's a reason why there's so much ass kissing going on in Hollywood before you got here. And that's because you don't understand Somebody who's at the very bottom of their game, living out of their car this week in six months can be picking up an Oscar. You know, I mean, that's the story of the guy who wrote Dances with Wolves. He was literally living out of his car. And a year later, he got an Oscar. That's amazing. You've got to basically treat people well, because people who maybe you don't need this week, you may need desperately in six months or a year. And. 
And, you know, but again, I mean, it's like, like I said, it's all sort of part of the chaos right now. Mm -hmm. I don't really care. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't really affect my game. My game is I, I just do the best work I can and move forward. And I'm not a peripheral visionary. I just, I don't look at what everybody else is doing. You can't. I just kind of, hey, I do my own thing. And hopefully somebody responds to it. Now, I've always wanted to ask um, you and, and also just someone like you who had that experience, that kind of lottery ticket win with Carnival. Yeah. What was it like when you got the call or were you in the room? What was that experience? You're like, we're, you're greenlit. We're going to make this show. Oh, I can remember exactly what it was like when I sold the thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, Cause I was at a, I was at a, um, my, I was at my, a little, I was like a, at my daughter's softball game. I remember where I was standing. I remember the, looking at my, 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 uh, looking at her, at her mother and going, Oh my God. Um, our life just changed. It, well, it was like, they're doing it. The, the, the problem was I just, I'd never tried to get into TV before then. And so I couldn't fully appreciate how amazing it was. You know, it was kind of like, eh, of course they bought it. It's good. I guess that's what I, my, my, my dad, when I was like, when I was like 17, he took me to Santa Anita racetrack. Right. And I, it's just beginner's luck. I picked seven out of nine horses on the notes. And, <laughs> and I remember sitting there and I was making these $2 bets. My dad's giving me two bucks and I go make a bet, and I go home with a couple of hundred bucks. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe this college thing is overrated. You know, <laughs> the, the track. The track just seems much more easy. So then way. I went back with a girlfriend, you know, expecting to impress her, and I didn't. You know, it's like, you know, they were like, you know, my horses. It was like they were shooting them out there. It was like, oh yeah, he broke his front leg. I'm taking that. Um, so I like, yeah, I was totally humiliated and realized, oh my god. And and it, there were a lot of aspects of carnival that were like that. I I wasn't I wasn't. Um, I, I hadn't gotten beaten up enough to really fully appreciate it um, in the market. I hadn't spent a lot of time trying to network or sell things. What I'd done is I'd spent 20 years um, really honing my craft, you know, and that was good. And if I was going to do it another, I'd rather do it that way than the other way. I don't think Hollywood's a good place to learn how to write in. So you, know? so you were basically training for a fight that you never knew was going to come or not come. But when it finally came – you were ready. Oh, yeah, I've been doing like Brazilian jiu-jitsu for 20 years. With, you know, in, a, in a basement somewhere, for, you know, no yeah. one knew who you were. Um, yeah, I was like, you know, I was bringing, you know, just bringing guys in and, and, and breaking their necks. There'd be no fucking witnesses. <laughs> so by the time I, I was fully evolved, I mean, I, I, I really was, I, I had, I had honed it to a fine point. Um, and in utter in a total obscurity um and awesome. um, a lot of people you know you get into it the problem i see with like getting into you know graduating from college getting that first job you reach a point where you're pulling down a six-figure paycheck and you kind of go well i guess i know everything i need to know about writing and your development as an artist just stops the other thing is i had 20 i had 25 well, by the time I did, I, was, I had four decades plus of living I'd done, and I I had a lot of experiences, and and 
you know, um, I had a lot to draw on versus mm-hmm. some guy who's 20 years old and he has like, I, I had a really bad breakup in high school. <laughs> you know, there was that time I got kicked in the nards in, 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 in seventh grade. In the nards. Seventh grade. I mean, there's just, you, you know, there's not a lot of complexity to what you can look back on at 22 years old. Whereas at 45, I had three kids. Mm-hmm. I know feeling. <laughs> There'd been the health, there'd been health problems. There'd been, you know, a million, a million things. And so it's like, I could draw on all of that. Now you, um, you also acted as a showrunner on a few shows. Can you tell which, which shows you worked on specifically as a showrunner? I was never really the the showrunner on Carnival, but I was kind of the showrunner by default on Carnival because the second season, Ron went away to do, um, Battlestar Galactica. And I was basically the head writer. I was doing everything a showrunner does, um, but it, you know, but but at the end of the day, there was another executive producer who was who was handling most of the post production and you know calling certain shots. So I wasn't really a pure showrunner, but I was making a, a lot of creative decisions and a lot of the crew were making end runs around the other guy to say, hey, you know, we're trying to get a decision. He has, you know. And he's putting this one to committee and we really need to know now. And I'd say, just do this, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, I know what a showrunner's job was. And so I know that in the second season, I was the de facto showrunner. Now, what does a showrunner do exactly for the audience so they understand? The showrunner is basically responsible for, first of all, uh, pretty much all the scripts and the trajectory of what's going on in the writing room and the story of what's being submitted to the network dealing with all the notes that come back from the network, dealing with the production issues that come up, um, looking at, you know, drawings of sets that are going to be built and signing off on those. You're signing off on everything. You're generally, you're generally, you know, working directly with your key uh, crew and your, your line producers um, to just make sure that everything's running, that all the trains are running on time. And um, and doing what you can do to to make their job, I would say I would say easier, but sometimes I think just to make their job possible. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's it's really a, it's really this is this is pyramid building, you know, and you're building a new pyramid every week, and you're building each pyramid from the factory floor up, and. And so there's a lot of details that need attending to. You're also, you know, you're delegating a lot. You can't be, you know, you can't have your hand in everything. Um, you just have to make sure that the right people who reflect and understand your vision for things are in the slots, you know. Now, can you talk a little bit about the writer's room and what it's like to be in that writer's room for people who have never been in a writer's room? Well, I've, there's, I've been in both. I've been in two kinds. There's really only two kinds of writer's room. Um, well, there's, there's, there's lots of different kinds of writer's rooms. Um, there's writer's rooms that work and writer's rooms that don't work. Um, there's <laughs> where, you know, um, the shows that I've run, the shows that I've been in charge of the writer's room, I take great pride in when, when I'm running a room, it's running on all cylinders. And um, you have five or six writers in a room and usually writer's assistant taking notes. You have... You're using cards or whiteboards and you're breaking story. Your job is to sit as a group and break story. And to me, the key is, first of all, everybody has to feel safe. You know, they have to feel like they're not going to be 
um, ridicule that they come up with something silly. Um, one thing that I really like, Ron Moore brought this to our room at Carnival, and, it, and according to him, it's it's an old Gene Roddenberry t- trick. Um, mm-hmm. Is thing called a stupid stick, and you designate something. It can be anything. It can just be an object. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And if you pick this thing up and you hold it and pitch something, nobody can make fun of you. It's got supernatural powers. That's awesome. <laughs> so, and often it's the stupid stick pitch that really picks, gets, breaks the dam. Like usually the reaction is that, like you shouldn't have picked up the stupid stick. That's actually really smart. Or it'll be, yeah, that's stupid. But, you know, if we did that, which fly, gets every, it, it just breaks a log jam. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, really the, the key to me of, of successfully running a room in, I think the best, I love analogies, but the best analogy I've found for a writer's room um, is, you know, you're drawing, you're drawing juice, you're drawing story out of the ether as a writer. Um, it's bubbling up through your story well. It's being informed by your own experiences. It's being filtered by your own experiences and interpreted by your own experiences. But that story comes from somewhere else. I truly believe the more I do this, that writers and artists, artists of all stripe, are the only people on earth that are actually in daily, um, who, who, in daily communication with with uh, supernatural. I mean, I just there's it's something else. I can't tell you how many times I've written something and gone, where the fuck did that come from? Oh, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> holy shit. Like, that's, that didn't come out of me, you know? <laughs> and it's nothing I've ever seen, and it's nothing I've ever experienced, for God's sake. And it's coming from somewhere else. And so you're, you're basically a light bulb, and there's a power station down, you know, down, the, down the street. I look at it as, you know, to keep the power station thing going, it's, like you're driving through the desert here in California and there's, you know, you're out towards Nevada and there's these uh, solar collectors mm-hmm. and it's, you know, hundreds of mirrors on the desert floor. All of those mirrors focused on uh, a heat element at the top of a tower that is, you know, moving turbines down below. And I look at it as a good writer's room is all the people are taking that, that mojo, that story mojo, that juice, and sort of focusing it on, you know, on, on the person who's running the room. And, and, and it's like, it's amplifying everybody there. You can't, if you have a good, well-worn writer's room, nobody can really remember who came up with what. Right. It becomes, it becomes, it becomes a pure hive mind. And, and I'm not just saying it, because I like Star Trek, but it becomes a, <laughs> it becomes a hive mind. And there's only one writer in the room. There really is only one writer in the room, but he's, he's the combination of, you know, the, the, the four or six or 12, 12 writers that are all sitting in the room, focusing their mirrors at, at that center point, which is just, you know, forging the story. Um, and it all kind of melds together, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not, you know, the, the 12 equals one, 12 creates one writer, you know, and that, that takes immense trust, um, and, and in the process and, and, um, and, uh, 
uh, measure of generosity and more than that, just making sure it's fun. And because, because creation is play. Creation is play at a very high level. Yes. But it's nevertheless, it's no different than, you know, like six kids in a sandbox right. with truck playing with trucks, you know, or army man or something. It, it's you're in a state of play and you need to make people feel like good. You know? <laughs> if not that plays. Not, yeah. Cause if you, if you, if you're making kids not feel fun, they're not going to play in that sandbox. What they're going to do is they're going to retreat to their corners and pound. And it, I've seen that happen in writer's rooms. I mean, there's writer's rooms where it's like, it's just, everybody's just staring a hole in the whiteboard and it's like, what if we, uh, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's like just so constipated. Right. Just, oh my God. I've been in rooms like that and it's just like, and usually it's a function of people at the top. Yeah, it's usually, usually it's, it's a trickle down effect of an, of, of, of the way that ideas are received. Um, shows like that are not fun. You know? Now, let me ask you a question. How do you deal with studio notes or notes in general from people who have not sat and bled on the paper like you have or on your laptop to build that story? Well, first of all, you know, I keep in mind that everybody – Everybody involved wants to make the material good. Now, you'd argue there's probably a few people out there that just want to get their fingerprints on it. And there's a good mm -hmm. argument for that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they want to be able to turn to their wife and see, hey, see that sweater? I picked that sweater out for that actress or something. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I think that's more the exception to the rule. Everybody is just dying to make something great. And, and, um, and sometimes if it's coming from um, – people who don't understand the process like executives um, it may not be as well articulated as it would be if you were getting it from another writer, you know, and thank God for that because if they were capable of articulating it as well as a writer, they wouldn't need us. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, that said, you know, I, I, I'd say, you know, I read every, every year I see some article and some basically on the internet or whatever, some blog or some screenwriting magazine and be like, the dumbest notes I ever got. And it's mm -hmm. a bunch of writers talking about the dumbest note I ever got. And to this day, I've never seen anybody write one saying the smartest note I ever got. Because I can tell you, for every really stupid note I've gotten, I've gotten one where I'm kicking myself in the ass on the way home going, why the hell didn't I think of that? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people come up with, with things where it's like, oh, wow, you're absolutely right. Um, I think the, the biggest problem is a lot of the notes, um, they have, a lot of executives, they want to pitch a solution. They perceive a problem and they, they tend to frame their notes as solutions to problems they perceive. Mm -hmm. So it'll be, hey, you know, do this. And you're kind of going, huh? Like, it feels, and it's like, it's, it, if there's any executives listening or any future executives, the best thing to do is just frame the problem first. You know what I mean? Um, oh, the, the second act or, you know, and be as specific as you can. I'm, this really bumps for me, you know, um, this particular moment or this, the second scene kind of drags or it seems like this one character disappears in, you know, in the second act. And, you know, 
frame the problem. Don't try to just pitch a solution um, because the solution, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you got a doctor. There's only one doctor in the room and, and then you got a bunch of people who are standing around in the room and they bring a patient in and he's bleeding from the ears and everybody sits, says, for God's sake, put cotton in his ears and put some band-aids on his ears. His ears are bleeding. There's a doctor and you're going, now actually that's indication of like, you know, you know, that's intracranial bleeding and we really have to get him into an MRI see what's going on with his brain, you know, um, and old, it's not a Band-Aid on the ears situation. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, sometimes it's better just to point out, hey, he's bleeding from the ears, not, hey, put some Band-Aids on his ears. You know, it's, right. it's just better to frame the problem or point out the problem than, than propose a solution. You are um, good at analogies, by the way. You are very good at analogies. <laughs> uh, thank you. I should open up a little store. You should just sell analogies. <laughs> now, what is the biggest mistake you see first time screenwriters make? Um, the biggest mistake screenwriters make, I would say the biggest mistake all writers, new writers make, and even a few that are like along the way is not recognizing a lot of people go, you know, if I get it really good the first time, it'll save me time on editing. You know, I can edit and write at the same time. I can multitask. I can work with my iPad and watch TV at the same time. So I can edit and write at the same time. And then they sit down, which in really editing is using a completely different part of your brain than writing. It's a completely, it's as different as the difference between, oh, I'm just doing an analogy, but it's as different as the difference between skiing and eating a banana. Right. I mean, it's like there's, they have <laughs> nothing to do with each other. Now, I suppose you could ski while you're eating a banana. But Not well. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, it's, it's like, it's really, they're, 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 they're mutually exclusive activities in We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And what I find is the effect is like when people do that and they go, that's where you get into the, it was a dark and stormy night. Oh, no, 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 that sucks. (laughs) It was was a shadowy and rainy night. Oh, that's worse. (laughs) This is the recipe for complete writer's block and paralysis mm-hmm. where you're trying to make qualitative decisions about things that are just dumping out of your head. Okay. Right. You cannot do it. You cannot do that. You can't do it. It is like, like pegging the accelerator and the brake on your car at the same time. You're going to make shitloads of noise and a lot of smoke, but the car ain't going anywhere. Okay. And so it's like, it's like understand that, you know, when you sit down to write, you write like you're being pursued through the jungle by a bunch of guys with machetes. You don't think about it. You go, you can be thinking, oh, this is shit. I know it's shit, but I've got to get through this scene. Okay, I know what the next scene's going to be. And just get through it. Get through it. Get through it. Get through it. Right forward. Don't. And what, for Christ's sake, when you sit down to write, don't sit down and read everything you've written before you write. 
Okay, because now you're editing again. Stop that. No. So you just sit down, you read the last few words, and you go, oh, yeah, that's where I left off, and you just pick it up. And you you have to write like you're just – now, and it's okay. If, you're, if you go off of your outline, that's all right. If something happens and the character takes you in a direction you didn't expect to go – great. Okay. You know, and sometimes those are great moments. And so go ahead, but as long as you get back onto your, you know, onto the path again and, mm-hmm. and, and arrive at your trajectory and arrive at your ending, but just get that first draft out and get it out as quickly as humanly possible. And, and I can guarantee you that the parts that you thought while you were writing them were just shit on ice. Actually, you'll reread them and you go, well, this isn't bad. And the stuff you thought where you were, oh, my God, I must be channeling, you know, uh, Eugene O'Neill, you know, <laughs> it's just garbage, you know. And so it's like it's like you have no way of knowing how well you're doing while you're creating. You can't be. You know, so that's yeah. another reason. So so my advice to writers is understand that process and understand editing and, 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 and writing and editing, the creative process and the editing process are two completely different things and um you know and and don't try to don't try to multitask that it never goes well i actually heard i actually heard a great analogy um from a songwriter and which i think is an amazing analogy for writing which is like when you go into an old house and you turn on the pipes and all you see is that mud come out you just got to let it go and let that mud keep flowing out of the pipes out of this faucet and then sooner or later, it's going to start. Wa- it starts getting lighter and lighter and lighter to the point where then you're getting clear water that you can actually drink. But you have to yeah. get through all that other stuff first, or else it won't. You won't get to the good stuff. So you just have to. You, you, it's like it's like it's 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 an ugly, messy, smelly process. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing. Yeah. Ma- there's nothing um, glamorous about being an artist. A lot of times, it really isn't. Not when you're real creative. <laughs> You know, when I'm, I'm, I'm one of those, I'm one of those rare birds. A lot of people are like, you know, they hate writing. Oh, you know, they're tortured. They're sitting in front of their, I've seen guys sitting there, sitting there frowning at their screens and, and doing this. I'm happy and giddy and stupid when I'm writing. I mean, I'm just like laughing. I'm like, like, I'm just sitting here making faces. Going, oh God, look, they're all going to be crying here. This is going to be so great. Well, you actually just said that right when we got on the on the on the line. You're like, I'm writing a ghost story. Like you were so happy about it when you said it. Yeah. <laughs> That's because I love this process. I, I, I there's tons of love on the page. I just adore writing. Um, I'm not one of those guys that's like, yes, all I like having written. Yeah, it's like I like the process. I like. I, I like doing it. It's one, you know, it's funny. There's that, I forget what it is. It's some recent, you know, one of those self-help business type books. And they made this prop proposal. And they go, if you do any endeavor or activity for 10,000 hours, yes. you will become. And it's like, okay. So if you want to be a, if you want to be a concert pianist, you just have to play for 10,000 hours. You know? What he doesn't say <laughs> is that if you didn't like playing the piano, right. you'd have to be the world's dumbest asshole to waste 10,000 hours of your life doing something you don't like doing. People who spend 10,000 of their hours of their life mastering some 
art or craft or science or whatever they master, they have to love it. You have to love doing that. But there's a lot of people that don't. A lot of people who go to school. You have to love love some aspect. Should. You know. Um, But, you know, I mean, a lot of people fall in love with the idea of being a writer, you know. But I meet writers every day that have never written a word. They're just natural raconteurs. They're really good at telling stories. They're just, uh, and it's like where I go, for God's sake, I wish you'd sit down and write a book or something because you're really good, you know. And then I meet people who are writers and they're making very good money. You know, I've worked with people who are writers and it's like they're not writers. They've, they've worked out the craft. They understand what follows what, but they're not really writers. They're just, they're just regurgitating things they've seen. And putting a spin on everything to make it, you know, to make it a little fresh enough to where everybody doesn't, you know, get scared. Yeah. That's an interesting, that's a, that's very interesting because you, sometimes you see these movies or you watch these shows and you're like, wow, it's just the same, the same stuff. And I've met writers too. I've met writers and filmmakers for that matter who do exactly what you do. They understand the craft. They're technicians, but, but like, you know, I could put the paint on canvas and I know how to do it, and I know the technique, yeah. but I'm not Da Vinci. <laughs> I'm no. not. I'm not Van Gogh. I'm not. I'm not being brave. I'm not being. You know, I'm not going out there uh, without a net. Well, yeah. I mean, but that's just. You know, maybe that's the cards that are dealt you. You know, not everybody is. You know, I. I mean, there's probably guys painting pictures from you know photographs down at the mall that you know from a craft and from a from a craft standpoint as far as mixing colors and laying down paint are probably you know highly evolved you know but the there's directors like that i won't name any names but there's directors that are absolutely masterful but it's just not quite substantial there's a there's a it's hard to put your finger on it but it's like there's a sense of a missing depth to it yeah you read my mind yeah that, that that somebody like Kubrick brings to the party, you know, or or Scorsese, or you know, where there's there's something really to it, and there's something underneath that. There's like fifty layers underneath, and you will yeah. only see it in twenty or thirty years of watching the movie. That you'll yeah, Kubrick. Yeah, did, Kubrick's my favorite. You you know, he was aware of uh, what he was doing and everything, but he wasn't aware of everything he was doing. And no mm-hmm. artist really is. A Correct. lot of it, you're just doing your best and it's coming in that way, but you really have no idea, um, you know, how, how, why it works that way. You know, you're just focusing on trying to articulate your vision as well as you can. Yeah. I mean, you know, I take, you go to college lit classes and you get some clown, you know, up in front, he's your college lit teacher. And he's trying to tell you what was going through Herman Melville's head. He's writing, (laughs) You know, Moby Dick or Stephen Crane's head when he was writing Red Badge of Courage. And yeah, he was thinking about this and he was working with symbolism over here. And, so, and I tell people, I go, I can tell you what was going through Herman Melville's head when he wrote Moby Dick. It was like, I got to feed my family and this thing's due in a couple of months. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's what was going through Herman Melville's head. It's right. like, I got to pay bills, you know? Right. Uh, doing the best you can you're running through the jungle with the guys with the machetes behind you that's what's happening you know it's funny because kubrick kubrick's one of my favorite artists of all time and and there's so much i mean there's volumes libraries written about 
what people think he was doing in 2001 and in the shining and, and, and all of those. And I just, uh, did you see the documentary film worker? Um, uh, I know it's, I it's, it's, it's his assistant. Uh, Oh, I did see that. Yeah. yeah wasn't it wonderful? Wasn't it wonderful? <laughs> but you hear him and he was the guy that was literally next to him for 30 years. And he's like, you know, the twins in shining. Well, that was me. I brought twins in and Kubrick said, well, I guess they're twins now where everybody's like, and there's twins because back in the day he shot some photos of twins and they're putting up and like, no, <laughs> it just happened it was, to be that way. Huh? It was. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The first episode of the first episode of Carnival is called Milfe. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I decided, you know, when I first created the show, I wanted to name each episode after each city they were in. We didn't do that the first year. We did it in the second year, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I titled the episode Milfe, you know. And the way I found it is I got a period a period map of the Dust Bowl and sort of looked at dots on the map and found a little tiny dot named Milfe. And I went, oh, I like that. And so that's what I titled it. So then we make it, and like two years later, it's on TV, and people are talking about it on the internet and going back and forth with their interpretations and stuff. And some guy says, well, you do know. And, <laughs> and Milfay is an anagram for family. And I'm going, well, I'm a genius, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, you know, it was like... I couldn't have been thinking about that. You know, I couldn't have done, I couldn't, I'm not going to be thinking about stuff like that. You know, when I'm making creative, because I'm making 10,000 10, creative decisions in the course of a screenplay, you know, it's 10,000 decisions to make. You can't be thinking on that level about everyone. You'd never finish. You'd be, <laughs> still be writing the pilot today. No, so, so when Carnival came out, um, the internet was, Definitely off and running is already around for a little bit, and but then mm. the message boards and all that stuff was going on back then heavily. Mm. And I yeah. remember people just you know, because it wasn't there wasn't as much content flying around as there is today, yeah. And they really delved into the deep, the deepness of Carnival. How is it as a creator? I've always wanted to hear this as a creator to go on. And just Louis, I'm like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like Woody Allen well, is like, you. That- I, I no, because uh, like I said, people have different interpretations for different. Sure, things. sure, sure. That's, that's nobody does that when they're talking about CSI or right. NCI, <laughs> right? Or even those like House. You know, right. they're they're not even really doing stuff like that on The Sopranos so much. But the minute they start to interpret stuff symbolism and so forth, mm-hmm. what things really mean, connections between different elements. As soon as people start doing that, you're talking now, that's what people do about art. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that means you succeeded and you've made art. It's not just a TV show. You've made art. And so that was the biggest thing. I mean, I'm not going to say, Oh, you're wrong because they could be right. I mean, to me, it's, like, it's, it's, is there's a collaboration happening between the artist and the audience. If the audience draws something out of it that the artist didn't intend, does that mean it's not there? Absolutely not. You know, that's a great perspective. Well, yeah. Why wouldn't it? It should be, if it's open to multiple interpretations, that's a good thing. It'd be that's because you're reaching people, different people in different ways. It's almost like, 
the 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 story in the Bible of uh, the, the apostles speaking tongues or something. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's hearing a different language. Um, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> well, it's yeah, like go, to go back to Kubrick. Every one of his movies has been interpreted a thousand different ways, and will yeah. continue to be interpreted for the for decades and decades to come in different ways. That's because his work is art. Which, yeah. which brings me to my poetry. I should pitch my poetry. Please, please pitch your poetry. Yeah, I was going to ask you what's next on your plate. Well, I'm doing a bunch of stuff. I'm, 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 I mean, it's like I've been, I've been creating shows that don't go on. <laughs> <laughs> you can check them all out. I mean, it's like people go, well, gosh, you haven't done anything. Since, you haven't created anything since Carnival. It's like, no, I've created like a bunch of shows. And, and for, I don't know why. I mean, I reread a bunch of them and I was saying, this, this is good. This could go tomorrow. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> um, but um, I, I've got a, a site called Noth TV and you can see it's, it's unusual because you can see the actual pilots in their entirety on some of the projects. There's another thing called the Bible, which we talked about earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. And you very rarely get to see show Bibles on the Internet. This mm-hmm. will give you an idea of what a Bible looks like, like what a show Bible looks like. Um, so it's a nice resource for new writers. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then there's these things we call decks, which are sort of like anywhere between an 11 and 15 page version of a Bible, like mostly sizzle, very little steak, just giving, it's the kind of thing they call leave behind. You might take it to a pitch meeting with you and leave something behind for the executives to pass up the chain of command. So some of those too. So they're, they're helpful selling things. And that's all on NAUF, K-N-A-U-F dot tv and uh, i'll put it in the show notes um the other thing the other thing is i recently i got i started writing poetry again i I wrote it i wrote poetry when i first started writing um as a you know when i i was an art major and then i flipped over to to creative writing and and i was drawn to that i did a a lot of poetry and worked with a lot of really great had a lot of great poets or teachers that was where i sort of cut my teeth in um, I started writing again um, about six, seven years ago, and for like five years, I was writing these these poems and just posting them on Facebook. I would just post them on Facebook, and because it's like, who gets paid for writing poems? What am I going to submit it to? I don't po- know poetry, you, poetry magazine. Yeah, po- yeah, poetry, yeah, yeah, <laughs> jugs. <laughs> poetry, the jugs of poetry magazine. Yeah, so we. We magazine does that still even exist? I don't know. And so, um, so I, I I just post them in this uh, this this woman was actually collecting them, and she contacted me and said, "I've got you've got like thirty five poems," and and um, I thought, "Wow, maybe we should do a book." So I called another person I knew as a publisher, and she said, "I would love to publish the poems by you." And so um, we did this thing. It's called NoHo Gloaming. I'm if you go on the, if you go on my Facebook page or Twitter, you'll find it. Um, if you go on the net and you want to find it, just put it in Clash Books is the publisher. C L A C C L A S H Books, and the book it's No Ho N O H O Gloaming G L O A M I N G, and there's links all over my my web my 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 social networks and so forth. And it's, um, it's about as pure, I mean, it's like when you do TV, like we're not about the note process is your, your vision is mitigated by a lot of people. 
You know, it, it's very rare where you get really the raw stuff up mm-hmm. because it takes so many people just to make these damn things, you know. Um, and, you know, everybody's, you know, it's going to waver from the way you might have imagined it, you know, down to, you know, props and camera angles. And it's all a myriad of details. And it was so nice to return to a form where I'm creating the end result right there on a page. And uh, so, and it's very approachable. It's not, it's not, po- if you don't like, if you think of poetry the way I think of mimes, okay? <laughs> 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 and you're allergic to poetry and you're going, oh, you know, it's not this precious stuff. It's, it's very relatable. I believe that if somebody, I believe people read it and they'll connect very deeply with it. Mm-hmm. There's one poem at the end that's an epic poem that's just crazy and kind of funny. And it's, it's the story of a guy in the witness protection program. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm not writing about ravens and, and <laughs> angels and, you know, dead king trees. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm writing about stuff like sit, go gas stations. And stuff. Right. Um, my influences were Charles Bukowski and this whole Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. Brown Baroque school. Um, and it's very down to earth and sort of grounded, straight up stuff. And, awesome. and sometimes amusing and sometimes moving. So I urge you to check out my poetry. If you like my TV, you'll, you'll really like that. Awesome. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. Um, yeah. What advice would you give a screen? Oh, is this on the actor's thing? Yes, 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 yes. Exactly. Exactly. It's just like what the actors to do. Odd type shit? Don't do that to me. I'm not going to do it's not going to be. If you were a tree, no, I'm joking. Um, what advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today? I would say the best thing you can do is skip film school and just start shooting film because you can do that. I couldn't do that when I was starting out as a filmmaker, would, as a filmmaker. Yeah, I would uh, film school. You will learn everything you learn in four years of film school in five days on a, on a set. Pretty much. You know, it's a film school is the world's biggest waste of money unless you go to UCLA or NYU or USC. USC yeah. And and otherwise, if you're going to some other college to get a, a communications degree or film degree or that, you are totally wasting your time. If you want to be a filmmaker, take take shit, take twenty five. Tell your parents, say, okay, I want to take twenty five percent of what you would spend on a college, and I want to make a movie with it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Just make movies, write them, get your friends together. If Sony has a good eye and make him the director, now just make, go out and start making movies. Um, and, and, you know, you might not monetize, but you'll get from here to there much faster than you will if you go to film school. For and how about screenwriting? For screenwriting, um, you know, I think the most important thing I would tell a writer who wants to be a dramatist, which is a very specific kind of writing, um, people think that, you know, novelists think, oh, I can, not, I can adapt this into a script. They usually can. It's very specific. Shakespeare was an actor before he was a writer, and I really, I didn't really learn how to be a dramatist until I studied acting. And I studied acting by accident. I thought I wanted to be a director. And so... One of my, my second mentor 
who was really important in my development was a guy named Cliff Osmond, who was an acting t- an acting coach. He was Armand Asante's, um, you know, acting consultant. And I, I met him on a set and we got to be good friends. And I said, I want to take some of your classes because I want to learn about the process so I can interact with actors as a director. And what I did was I ended up learning how to write. I, le- I really learned, I was really good at packing the trunk and I knew how to, um, to break a story and, and, and figure out what follows this and what follows that. When it came to my character work, um, I was faking it until I studied acting and you'll learn. One thing you learn in acting is, is to act in the moment. Now, if you're, you got stage fright, I have terrible stage fright when I'm playing somebody other than myself, I can get up in front of a zillion people Mm -hmm. being damn off. I don't, you know, but if I'm playing a character, it's scary. Um, and, um, you know, I, I just can't build that fourth wall. But when I'm alone in a room, I can. And um, I, I'm writing in the moment. I'm mostly, my scene work feels like tr- I'm just taking transcription. I know my characters so well. I know what they're saying. All I'm doing is just trying to keep up with them while they're, while they're talking, going through a scene. I never am going, hmm, what would he say there? Hmm, what would she then say? Another thing I'd say to young actors or young young writers is that uh, sort of a sort of attached to that mm-hmm. is if you're going to a place like that and you're going, what would I say if I was in that situation? What would I say if somebody said that to me? Is nobody really gives a fuck what you would say, okay? <laughs> because you're really not interesting. Actors aren't doers. Actors are watchers. If you're boring just boring, boring people. And so nobody cares what you'll see. You have to understand your character and what the character would say. They all have to have different voices. They have to be real, you know? So again, I would really strongly suggest studying, spending at least a couple of years, um, you know, in any way you can and whatever resource your town or city has, um, getting up and, studying acting and doing scenes and seeing how hard it is. And it also helps you develop a really strong respect for your, for the actor and how mm-hmm. hard they're. And that's something that's sorely lacking with many writers in Hollywood where I'll hear them going, Oh yeah, that guy, he's a shitty actor. He just he sucks. And it's like, has it occurred to you that, you know, you're writing shitty stuff for him to say, like, you know, there's no way to make <laughs> work well asshole. Right. <laughs> if Meryl if Meryl Streep was saying it it wouldn't have worked <laughs> yeah I mean if you can get to where you write and it, it, when you're in there and you're doing you're working with actors you know actors you get to understand the kind of stuff the actors want to say right. that the kinds of moments actors want to play and if you know that and you get them on your side I mean you know that's good that's something that's gonna make you stand out you know now, can you tell me what book had the biggest impact on your life or career? The biggest the book that had the biggest impact on my life or my career or mm-hmm. and my career? Or, or, and? or, or. Either or. I would say at this point, you know, it's, I was a late comer to it. Was, uh, um, well, let me think. There's, there's so many of them. Whichever one comes to your mind. The Alchemist. Oh, of course. I love The Alchemist. It's one of my favorite <laughs> books. It's it's an astonishing book. piece of work. And it's a, uh, I think everybody should everybody should read it. It should be required. It should know? be required for everybody in the world, but especially those who are artists. <laughs> I think uh, even I, so. 
think I think yeah, but I think for everybody, I, I think, think so too. I, I think it's a good. It's about as close a thing to an, a uh, like. A, if Homo sapiens came with an owner's manual, it would be the alchemist. Yeah, I agree know? with you. I would agree with you. Good answer. Good answer. Now, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film industry or in life? Hmm. Um, that I'm not always right. You know, that sometimes um, I've been in situations where I'm absolutely sure something's not going to work. And, and, and that person has, you know, higher rank than I do. So they're the ones who get to call the shot. And I'm thinking, hey, this is going to not work. It's not going to work as well as the way I would have done it. And then all of a sudden I watch it and it works beautifully, you know. And, and I go, hmm, you know what? I was wrong. Um, you know, it's like this is the way, you know, just because it's the way you would do it doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. And, and, um, and in, when it comes to a, a collaborative art, passion rules the day. And you know, what it boils down to is the person who's most passionate is probably going to win that fight. Don't get hung up on little stuff. If people want this change, the worst place you can go, the least productive, most toxic place you can go is to this place that almost every shitty writer goes, which is, they're trying to wreck my work, you know? And it's like, yeah, they're dumping shitloads of money into this and they just want to wreck it because they don't like you. They're mean people and they want to do <laughs> foolish, you know? Let's go, come on, for God's sake. You know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes another way does work and sometimes it works even a little better than the way you had in mind. Just don't, don't think that you're ever going to watch something that, that is exactly the movie you had in your mind when you conceived it and wrote it. It's always going to be a little different. Some parts are going to be better. Some parts you might wince at. Um, hopefully the, you know, the former is more numerous than the latter, you know? Very good. And then the toughest question of all three of your favorite films of all time. Oh, that is tough. North by Northwest. I love, I Amazing. love that. Amazing. Um, uh, I think, um, uh, let's see, there's a lot of them. Uh, I'm just going to see what pops into my head. Oh, Casablanca, of course. Of course. Um, and then I think it's probably, uh, it's probably a, geez, it's really kind of a dead heat between Chinatown Oof, great movie. and, uh, and, and, um, and The Shining. Oh. I really Oof, love The Shining. But, there's, there, but I can name a dozen more movies. Of course. As those four, right? So. Exactly. That just came into your mind right now. No, I, I agree with you 100. percent And I mean, everything by David Lynch. Can, does that count? Everything, everything by Kubrick. Him. Everything by David Lynch. And every other movie by the Coen Brothers. It's like that. <laughs> it yeah. is every other. Coen. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It is almost every other movie. Because, but when they hit it, they hit it out of the park. I know. But when they strike out, they. Sw- but you know what, though. No, they, even when they strike out, it's an interesting strike. Out. That's what I was about to say. I was about to say, even when they strike out, at least they're going to places that is pushing them creatively in places that we might have never even been to. So for every no country for old men, there might be a lady killer. <laughs> hey, do you, do you do editing on this thing after you're done? I do not. You don't? We go straight through? I go so straight I can't, I'm, I'm going to say, 
honey, keep it down. <laughs> I'm on the radio. <laughs> no, my audience is used to this, so it's all good. Don't worry. And then where can people find you? She just dropped her purse on the, on the, it, it, on the table. It was, probably sounded like the, like the bomb. It's all it's good. So. It's all good. Now, where can people find you in your work? Uh, people can find all of these things I've done at Noth TV, and then you can find my stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, it's I'm pretty active in in, in on Twitter and the social networks. There's interviews, you know. Just Google my ass, <laughs> and you'll pop Google up. Google Daniel Noth. Don't Google my ass because <laughs> there, there, you can find me all over the place. And as far as what I'm doing right now. Right now, I'm kind of. I finished up. I did three years on the blacklist, and I'm kind of been doing a lot of development. So I'm right now. I'm kind of. I'm. I'm. I'm kind of. I'm between jobs. Okay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, <laughs> what's it? As Henry in Eraserhead would say, I'm on a vacation. <laughs> I'm on a vacation. You're on sabbatical, uh, sir. You're on sabbatical. You have a psychic sabbatical, sure. <laughs> Daniel, um, it, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being so kind yeah, and generous with your time. Sure. Thank you. I, 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 I enjoyed it. I want to thank Daniel for dropping some major knowledge bombs on the tribe today uh, and sharing his experiences, his unique experiences as a showrunner and a writer. And guys, if you want to get notes to anything we discussed in this episode, just head over to the show notes at IndieFilmWatcher.com forward slash 675. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com, subscribe and leave a good review for the show It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com.